0: There we go. So we have been looking at Sunday school stories. And we've been doing like Sunday school, the rest of the story, looking at all the stuff that doesn't really get talked about in Sunday school, because it might be a little bit strange for the children's. And uh, today we're going to kind of do a Mother's Day edition of it, because it's Mother's Day. And there's a couple things that people put on the board. One of the things that people put on the board was the story of Leah. And, um, so we're going to look at that today. Leah is an important mother in the Bible. Um, and we're going to look at, uh, Rahab, who's another important mother in the Bible. And, uh, I think people, people had a lot of, have a lot of preconceptions about what biblical motherhood looks like. We see, like, if you go to Hobby Lobby, I'm sure you can find a sign that has, like, biblical motherhood and some motherhood quality things on it. It's that type of thing where there's this stereotype this is what we think of, of, of biblical motherhood. And, uh, I think when we we think of biblical motherhood, we, we usually go to Mary. Mary is like the ultimate mother because she like mothered God on earth. And so people think about Mary as the mother standard, or they look to Sarah, um, Sarah being the mother of the nations and other people may, you know, think back to Eve, um, what I think is interesting is, is that when you look at the beginning of Matthew and you look at Jesus' genealogy, it starts with mainly the men. But for whatever reason, Matthew puts particular women also in that line when he does it. He doesn't do it all the time. Like, it, sometimes it just stays with the men. But he also is throwing, there's certain uh, women who he throws in there, mothers that were part of Jesus' lineage. And so while, while Sarah is part of Jesus' lineage and Mary, Mary is part of Jesus' lineage, we, we learn a lot about them and we think a lot about them as far as being mothers. But today I kind of wanted to look at mothers that, uh, that if we were to look at them, we'd be like, oh, goodness, this is like, she's a hot mess. And, and that's where a lot of the mothers and fathers in the Bible, when we dig in, it's, it is a hot mess. And, you know, that's what Yahweh's working with. That's who, that's who Jesus came to work with. And so today I'm going to talk about those two. But first I kind of want to talk about the stereotype of biblical motherhood a little bit. Um, here's some pictures that you may enjoy. This is what I thought of when I started thinking of like, well, growing up, what did the biblical motherhood thing look like? Like as a, as a look. And so I thought of like American evangelical stereotype mothers And so I thought this pretty much represented what I thought about growing up based on what you would see on television, like Christian media. And so uh, you kind of get a progression there. And then you end up with that one in the corner. I saw that. I don't watch any Christian television, so I don't know. But that seems to be like a bunch of Christian women that get together and talk about stuff show. So I kind of figured that slots out the modern. So you, you kind of get this strange painting through the times of what a Christian mother will look like, um, and what a Christian mother does. And, and I think that everything is culturally impacted on what a mother should do. And there's nothing wrong with the choices a mother makes one way or the other. Um, but sometimes people get these ideas of what a good Christian mother is. And so some people feel the pressure to stay home. Some people want to stay home. Uh, make sure everything is kept up. Deals with the children's problems. Must be happy, content. Make sure household is the same. Must teach Sunday school. When I was growing up, it just seemed like there was this lofty idea of what the Christian mother must do at all times. And um, I, I think that sometimes that's, we've allowed that, that face to color what we think of when we think of Christian motherhood. Mm-hmm what we think of what makes a, a good Christian woman. Um, and again, there's nothing wrong. If you can accomplish those things and that's what you're doing You're that's what you're doing. I just, the Bible paints a picture that's way more varied than that. And um, so I kind of want to look at those today. First thing I want to do is I just want to, when I think about women, um, I'm not going to try to do like a, a whole sermon of mansplaining, but I want to say that like, there's this idea that uh, back from Genesis, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit. Another way they translate that is according to him for him. And the word there for helper can be accurately translated helper. That's not a problem. And the the Hebrew word is Ezer. And Ezer doesn't mean the helper that sometimes we teach it means. So first, there's two other places, or there's two other connotations that it's used in the Bible. And it's used as only these. And the first one is it's, it, refused, it, it refers to when allies come to help someone in battle. So this idea of an ally assisting you in battle. And the second, the second way it's used in Scripture everywhere else is that God is Israel's helper, Israel's Ezer. So you have the ezer, where your your friends come to meet you and you assist in battle. So that's that word. And I think, I think the word helper, it, sometimes we turn it into a servant or sub, subordinate thing. And it's, it's an ally. It really just means an ally. God is our ally. God is never our subservient, subordinate. And um, the way that it's used in Hebrew in the Old Testament it's used ninety times it's only in those two connotations, so I think it's really interesting that we've the first time it's used in Genesis, we kind of we pigeonhole it to that, and that's not what it means and it really I think it when we when we think of mothers, when we think of women, we need to think of allies and that's that's something that that's within the church that the church needs to work out as a whole but, um, but yeah, it, it means ally and to to read that as ally makes a lot of sense when you, when you start getting further into Genesis. You start getting further into Genesis and you see God is working with these women and these women are allies. So, so that's just the, kind of the, the first thing. Um, so I want to look at two of the allies today. I already mentioned them. These will help us on our Sunday school the rest of the story because someone wrote down they wanted to learn about Leah. And we're going to get into Jericho at some point. And, and Rahab plays a very important part in the Jericho story and um, also plays a very important part in the continuation of the whole biblical God's rescue plan. And so I want to look at Leah and I want to look at Rahab and I want to look at them in their context and look at what, who God allies with and what God works through. So Leah, there's, there's chapters in Genesis where we learn about Jacob. Um, Jacob is going to find a wife. You have Abraham, you have Isaac, you have Jacob and Esau. Jacob receives the blessing. And so we're kind of at that point where Jacob has received the blessing. Jacob's still living around at home and Abraham's like, dude, it's time to, time to get out of the basement and go do something. You need to go find someone to marry. And so that's what Jacob does. Um Abraham wishes him well, blesses him as or Isaac tells him it's time to get out of the basement. Isaac blesses him. Jacob goes out, and then we we kind of we join the story here. I'm gonna go through the story rather quickly because it takes like three or four chapters to just read through it all. So I kind of summarized it. Um Jacob rolls up to a well, Rachel rolls in. Rachel is a hot shepherdess. It's the first thing the Bible says. She comes in with her sheep. She's coming to water the sheep. And Jacob is smitten right away. It says that in various ways, it says how beautiful she was. And so Jacob goes up to her and just kisses her right away. So very forward, Jacob. And uh, then he starts weeping. And then she goes to tell her dad who has come for them. And then Laban, who is his uncle, he comes around and tells Jacob to crash with him for a while. And so Jacob's living with Laban for a while. He's working with Laban, and Laban is, hey, you're my nephew. You don't work here for nothing. So what do you want for your payment? Jacob replies, I want to marry your daughter, Rachel. The Bible describes Rachel as having a great face and body at that point, which is strange. It just throws that in there. It describes Leah, her sister, as having weak eyes, uh, which means kind of plain, possibly kind of ugly. And Laban agrees, and Jacob works with Laban for seven years. So we're going really quick through this. All right, so you can insert a Jacob-working-really-hard montage for about seven years. Seven years roll by. Jacob says, hey, seven years is up. Please give me my wife so that we may do things. And Laban gets a feast set up, invites everyone. Later that night, he sends his daughter into Jacob's tent. Uh, Funky, sweet R&B music plays. And the next morning, Jacob wakes up next to Leah and says, Behold, and literally what the Bible says he says. So then he goes right to Laban, because Laban did the switcheroo. Laban gives a shifty Mr. Crab's money-grubbing excuse about customs among his people. Tells Jacob, for the price of seven more years, he can have Rachel also. So Jacob buckles down, and we watch another hard-working Jacob montage for seven years. Finally, Jacob receives Rachel after seven years, and now he's married to the sisters. Each sister came with their own maidservant also, which plays into the story later because it's going to get weird and messy. And so now you have a guy that is married to both sisters. He's honoring his commitment to Leah. Evidently, we'll see maybe not honoring it very well, but now he's also married to Rachel, not the situation Jacob was intending to be in. Um, so Genesis twenty nine thirty one picks up kind of where that, that leaves off. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated which is very rough to begin with. We, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Then Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked on my affliction, for now my husband will love me. That's sad. So That's, that's big sadness right from the start, kind of feeling bad for Leah. So she's probably already having a competitive life with her sister, sister is this dashing shepherdess that just goes and does what she pleases, and Leah seems to be unpleasant on the eyes and stuck around home with dad, and dad then has to trick a man into marrying her, and then now she's married with a sister that she may have already been competitive with. We don't know for sure, but I'm sure that relationship is tense to begin with, and now you're sharing a man with your sister, and she finally conceives, so she has more children, with Jacob right away, and this is how you're getting the twelve tribes of Israel. So Leah has uh, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, and then she stops having children. Um, Rachel is upset now that she can't have children like her sister, so she blames Jacob. And Jacob's like, uh-uh, I'm I'm having plenty of kids. It's not me. And so Rachel gives her maid to Jacob. So then Jacob proceeds to have two children through Bilhah, the maid. Then Rachel figures out, hey, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. And then Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and prevailed. So right away, you see there, there's just this competition, this weird dynamic between the sisters, and we feel bad for Leah. Um, So she called that son Naphtali. And when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. And Leah's servant Zopah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. And so she named his name Asher. So, just to get us caught up, Jacob has four kids with Leah. Or three kids with Leah, right away, four. Then, Rachel in jealousy gives her servant so that they can have their own family through the servant. The servant has two Leah gets jealous because now Jacob is focused on this family with the servant. Jacob goes to the, uh, Leah's servant now, and now Leah's servant has given him two more kids. Um, this is weird. This is a strange thing for us in our culture, and people wanted the Leah story. This is the Leah story. It's not a fun story. It's, it's not a fun thing being Leah. But keep in mind, Leah did have a son named Judah, and that's important later. Um, so after then, after, after the servant has kids, Leah is able to have kids once again. And so Leah has Issachar and Zebulun and a daughter named Dinah, which everybody forgets that there was actually a, a female in the family of the 12 sons of Israel. So she has Dinah. So then Rachel finally gets healed. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot. But then she is now able to bear children. And she has Joseph with with Jacob. And, of course, this is going to lead into all the problems with Joseph and his brothers. Because now Jacob has finally had a child with the lady that he loves and wanted from the start. So now there's Joseph. Um, Eventually, she's going to have Benjamin, but will die in childbirth with Benjamin. There you go. There's your 12 sons of, uh, of Israel. And what do we see in this story? We see a lot of dysfunction. We see a lot of greed. We see a lot of lies, revenge, bribery, sex. The story paints a poor picture of the early days. Leah gets treated like a pawn. Leah makes mistakes. Leah has a hard time it's rough. And it just looks like here's, this is God's rescue plan. This is, this, is, this is from the family that he picked to do it all. You know, this is Abraham's grandpa. And, and this, is, this is going on with Abraham's grandchildren. Um, Leah survives it all. She raises her kids. Uh, not all of them are going to turn out great but she partners with Yahweh to produce the line that will bring us to Jesus. And uh, Yahweh is still moving through all of this dysfunction to, cons- to continue his rescue plan. Yahweh, Jesus, will use all of us. Doesn't matter our background. Doesn't matter how messy it was in the past. He's, he's going to work, I don't like to say use, but he'll work with us. He works with, and he works through that stuff. So there is the dysfunctional story of the 12 sons of Israel. And it just continues to get weird. But I wanted to point out that uh, that it's, it's Leah is the mother of Judah. And Judah is important because Judah is the line from which Jesus comes from. And uh, so when we look at the lineage, we'd think, because, because Jacob received the blessing, and Jacob really wanted Rachel, and Jacob and Rachel's kids, you'd think it would be Benjamin or or Joseph would be the prize, too, that would carry on that thing that we get Jesus out of, that lineage. But it's not. It's actually Leah. And so for whoever wanted to hear Leah's story, that is Leah's story. Um, Rachel ends up dying. I think Leah's around for a while, and Jacob lives to an older age. And then pretty much from here, we're going to jump into stories about the sons. And we see a little bit of the dysfunction in the sons. The sons seem to at least get along for the most part. Until Joseph and Benjamin come along. And then we'll get the you know, get the story of Joseph, which we'll do at some point later. Um, but that's Leah's story. And that's that's one of the mothers that contribute to us receiving our Messiah. And it was not it was not a positive, positive experience. So now we're gonna we're gonna switch to another one who is actually in Jesus' lineage, and her name is Rahab, but she is not a Hebrew. So she did not start off as a child of Abraham, and uh, she's actually, she was a Canaanite. And uh, if you read the New Testament, you don't do a lot in the Old Testament, you'll hear the name Rahab, and you don't really think much of it, other than Hebrews 11 says that this woman was in the, the faith hall of fame. So this woman is one that we're supposed to look to as an example of faith, um, along with the Hebrew forefathers and Moses. She's one of the only, she's one of the women mentioned there, which was strange at the time even to mention a woman in that, especially when you're talking about the forefathers. So there's something about Rahab. There's something that we're supposed to look at. And the author of Hebrews believes that. James 2 said that she is a prime example of faith plus works. We've talked about faith and works before, and that you need to, your faith needs to exhibit works. And Rahab is one we're supposed to look to as an example of that. So if, you, if you're just getting the New Testament version on this, you're going to think that she's a very, quote-unquote, good Christian woman. Woman. Let's look at Rahab's background and kind of figure out what's going on with Rahab. So here we are. We're in the conquest. Joshua has taken over. We're at the beginning of the book of Joshua. This is Joshua 2. We are going to go through this story. It's not very long. Um, And then we don't have to do it when we do Jericho. And, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim, As spies, So they're already in the land. They've already done some conquering. They've already taken out some kings when they were with Moses. Um, And so they have a regular network of spies they've been sending out into the land before they go into the places to, to conquer it. And Joshua said, go view the land, especially Jericho. And when they went, they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Okay, so it is a prostitute. She has her own house that she lodges people with, so we can continue to make connections on what Rahab's business is. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho said to Rahab, saying, bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men, two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came in, came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. Uh, I do not know where they went, but if you pursue them quickly, you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them in the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. A couple of things that we have to read within context here prostitute who provided lodging. So her family's running a brothel, basically. She is a, she's running a brothel. It's inside the, the large gate. Jericho's gates were huge. Uh, there's a reason Jericho's great gates and walls were exceptionally large. We'll talk about that in a bit. Um, so how did the king find out about two veteran spies of Israel bopping in? We don't really know. It's only two guys. Did they, were they that bad at their job? I don't know. I mean, they had been doing this before. So I believe that there's probably some spiritual overtones. People were figuring things out. At this point, you have spiritual beings in the promised land who don't want God's people coming in. Um, Why did she choose to hide them even before the king sent a word? That's interesting to me. Um, Why does the king just listen to her, and how can she just talk that way to the king? So I have some speculation on this. This is just speculation. We know she's running a brothel. We know that she prostitutes in the place. I'm beginning to wonder if she was running like, and the, and the king, you know, the, is the king just going to listen to a regular lady of the house or whatever they call them who's running the brothel? I'm, I'm guessing that there might have been some temple prostitution there, that maybe they were the priestess of the religion that would prostitute out. So there's this There might be that spiritual connection there too. Um, She had already hidden them before the king sent word, so she already kind of knew what was going on. Where was she getting all of this? I don't know. Um, But I just I speculate on the temple running the temple prostitute thing, just because it would it helps other things in the story make sense. So before the bed lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, "I know that the Lord has given you the land." and that the fear of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land will melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. And the king's names were Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any of the men because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God of, in the heavens above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to the death if you do not tell this business of ours, and then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Um, who is the we? For we have heard. Is she talking about just Jericho or is she talking about possibly the cult that was there? Because she seems to have all the information. Why Sihon and Og matter and why she mentions them with the same same like, he parted the Red Sea, that's a miracle. And he took down Sion and Og. Sion and Og were both giant kings. So Og was supposedly this giant guy that talks the Bible talks about his giant bed. And so so he's of tribes of giants up in the north, up in the Dan region at the time. And so Jericho would have never thought of anybody going in and taking down those cultures or civilizations up there. So so she knows right away he's parting the Red Sea. Yahweh is doing this. Yahweh just gave you victory over these two evil men that were running ruthless countries um, that no one else would touch. And she recognizes in her heart right away that Yahweh is supreme, no questions asked. If you look at her, she just goes straight to business. As soon as those, those gentlemen came into her house, she took them up, she hit them, She knew she had a role to play, and she knew from there on, it didn't matter what the king wanted. It didn't matter what the principalities over Jericho wanted. What only mattered is that she needed to serve the supreme being, the one above all. And I think that's the faith right there. I think that's the faith that James refers to. I think that's the faith that's referred to in Hebrews. It's that that direct loyalty right away to Yahweh. And here she is, she's a prostitute, possibly a temple prostitute. So now you're throwing spiritual stuff in with already the sexual nature of things. And she has that change right away. She knows in her heart, and it just, it clicks. And that faith is there, and she she is allied again. Now she is allied to Yahweh. Yahweh has another ally, another helper in this. And so we get that right away. And we see that. So then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards, you can go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in your window through which you will let us down. And you will gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and your father's household. And then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window." Scarlet cord in the window, got the whole warehouse thing going on. And so a lot of people think, historically, some of the the scarlet cord and the red cord and the red thing on the door, a lot of people take that even from back to the story, the idea of it, some cultures and stuff. So she did. So she marked her window. She was faithful. And uh, like I said, we already read how apostles in early church viewed her. Her legacy continues through her own children. And this is the fun part. Matthew says that she's the, fun, the, the mother of Boaz. And so Boaz is the husband of, anybody remember? Ruth. Yeah, so we get the story of Ruth. And the story of Ruth isn't too far off from this story as far as timeline. And so she actually ends up being King David's great-grandmother. And here she was, a pagan Canaanites, who had a giant change of heart and knew in an instant that Yahweh was for her. And Yahweh worked with her to deliver the, the Israelites the information they needed as they, they went into their Jericho. Um, so so Jesus is great, 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 for a while, grandmother too. Which, to me, that's fun. Like, you would have never expected. We think about biblical motherhood, we think about the way certain things look in our opinion, in our churchianity that we have in, in, in America. And uh, we don't always think about these women who, who played a very important role in, in God's rescue plan and continued to in the New Testament. Um, so he's not, Jesus isn't really concerned with the views of other people. Um, success as a mother is not defined by whatever narrative is pushed, by whatever culture feels at the time The the real question is, as mothers, are you allied with Jesus? Are you that ezer, the Hebrew word that we talk about in Genesis, that you are are an ally, you're an ally to to men and to God? And um, that's kind of where I was at today. I just wanted to look at, I hear I I work at a place um, with a lot of children that don't have the greatest support systems, and usually a lot, a lot of it is single mothers. And I always hear the hot mess stories. And I always hear the tough stories. And I think when I talk to them, they, they feel, they feel removed from anything greater. And, and I think that that's kind of what I just wanted to say today is that it doesn't matter doesn't matter people's expectations. The only thing that matters is, is Yahweh's expectations. And when you're raising children, it's between you and God and what, what God is telling you to do. And, and just just be that ally. And if you have times in life where you are a hot mess, it's all right. We've got plenty of that in the Bible, and Yahweh still accomplished what he wanted with Jesus and Jesus accomplished what he wanted. And um, that's it. That's the, the hot mess Mother Day, Mother's Day. So I want to pray. Lord, again, we are uh, always taken by surprise with who you choose and who you work with and who, who chooses you sometimes. It's, it's always amazing to me. It's always humbling. It's always really good to know that you love us all regardless. And you have, you have kingdom work for us all. And your family is large. And your family members have so many different backgrounds. And Lord, we just thank you for bringing us into your family and we thank you for the spiritual and genetic mothers that came before us in the faith. Lord, we love you. We thank you for those women. We acknowledge all the work. We acknowledge the heartbreak. Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for those mothers of the faith. So Jesus, I just ask that you'd be with us throughout this week. Holy Spirit, that you'd be showing us things throughout the week. And show us how to appreciate those who are who are really striving. And maybe just maybe just a month away from being a Rahab. And keep us from being judgy when we look at when we look at people who could be preparing a great legacy. We just can't see it. Jesus, we thank you for paving that way to become part of the family again. We thank you for that invitation. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all these things. and In your name we pray. Amen.